Welcome everybody to Hopeful Majority number two. I am Manu Meal, and today's question is, why is it so hard to actually bring people together and find hope to solve problems? Easy question. Every episode, 10 minutes, you and I have a conversation about answering that question. And in the next 50 minutes, I actually bring on a guest to have an honest, hard-hitting, and nuanced conversation. Today's guest is going to be Monica Guzman, Senior Fellow at Braver Angels and a fascinating author. If you missed last week's episode, remember that we come at you weekly, Apple, YouTube, Spotify, wherever you get your content, wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, before we get into it, I like to remind us, why are we actually here? We're here for one simple reason, and that is because people like you and I are willing to put aside our politics and our labels for a higher calling. And that higher calling is what I call the American experiment, an experiment in democracy that requires us to be open-minded, to listen to each other, to care about each other, to acknowledge each other's existence, because most importantly... We've got to build nuance and fight outrage because that's how we solve our problems. Support the show. Let's get on with it. Why is hope so hard to come by, especially for somebody my age? Why is it so hard to embody the temperament that we're talking about within the hopeful majority? Why is it so hard these days to be tolerant, to listen to each other, to be patient, why is it hard to be vulnerable, to give people the chance to be better, not to score some political win, but just to advance our politics and our society and our democracy? I think there's three parts to answering this question. The first is life experience. I think how we grow up, where we grow up, during what times we grew up has a huge impact on our temperament. Take somebody my age. I'm 24 years old. I was born in New Jersey. I lived in India with some for some time with my grandparents. My parents lived out in the U.S. Then I moved back, moved around every two years until high school. And I went to college and graduated in 2020. The four major events that had defined my lifetime. I was born around 9-11. I graduated middle school during the Great Recession. I went to high school during the year that was 2016, that presidential election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and then graduated college in 2020 during the pandemic and the Capitol riots in 2021 and the Black Lives Matter protests in that summer. Not a great sample size of boundless progress and optimism and democracy. And I know some of the folks that are listening that are from older generations can relate to their lived experiences. You know, we're growing up at a time of tumult, of uncertainty, where people can't trust each other, where people are losing faith in institutions, where somebody my age doesn't necessarily understand what this democracy thing is or why it actually is effective or needed, because it seems like it's not working. You know, last spring, the Harvard Institute of Politics came out with a study. It'll be linked in the description where it cites the fact that 38% of young people are demonstrating indifference towards democracy as an institution. But that doesn't surprise me. You know, there's skepticism. If the only thing that I've seen in our politics and our democracy and our society is constant, constant conflict and upheaval, then the first question that I would ask anybody is why? And the second question I would ask anybody is what can we do about it? And this brings me to point number two, a lack of visionary leadership. The people that are in charge of answering that question of how we get out of this, how do we solve our current moment? How do we address the discord in our society well, it seems like they're not driven by actually genuinely answering that question. It seems like a lot of our leaders in our politics and our society are incentivized by dividing people. It seems like they're incentivized by profit. It seems like they're incentivized due to the preconditions outlined by polarization. If I'm somebody running in a in a primary, 10% of Americans turn out in a primary and average, and most of those 10% are not in the hopeful majority. They're on the temperamental extremes. Again, not ideological, temperamental extremes. People that are the most passionate, most uh, uh, unwilling to listen, they're turning out 
Those are the people that I'm incentivized by. Our current leaders are not answering the question and the call of how we revive, center, and strengthen this American experiment for everybody. We're about to enter 2024 with a rematch, likely, likely rematch, regardless, could be front runners, between President Biden and President Trump. Now, I don't care where you stand on the political spectrum or what you think of them. But the fact is that if our political system is somehow producing two leaders that probably have the lowest approval ratings in history of past presidents, two leaders that have presided during some of the most divisive times in American history, and importantly, regardless of whether you think they've created accomplishments or or have created sincere threats to our democracy, have not necessarily answer that call, then our visionary leadership is lost, especially for somebody my age. You know, that's not a great recipe for faith, for hope, for having this temperament of patience and sitting back. And the third and final piece is that we lack a vision and an understanding of what it means to be American. It doesn't have to be the same answer for everybody, but there isn't that vision that ignites. There isn't this feeling of upbeat optimism. I'm going to throw out something bold. And that something bold is the fact that I think that most people in this country, most people, everybody in the hopeful majority, most people want freedom. Most people want justice. Most people want opportunity. Most people want equality. I know it sounds very naive to say, even mis even misplaced optimism. It sounds it sounds like I'm on Mars. And yet, why do I deeply, deeply believe that? Why do I believe that most people are on the same page? The reason I believe that is because I talk to everyday Americans as much as I possibly can. Go back to episode one, where I talk about the road trip that changed and provided me insight on how I think about our moment in our politics. You know, I went from Austin to Boston, drove through and met folks from all across the political spectrum, from different faith backgrounds, and different ethnicities and race and gender. And almost everybody said something around three things. Everybody said, you know, I want a family that does better than than me, a, a society in which I, my kids prosper. I want to live in a country where I feel like I belong and that respects me. I want to live in a society where I can practice my aspirations. It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. And yet, why do we believe that most people are not on the same page as us? Why do we believe and are driven to, to give in to the fact that our most polarizing figures in our media and our politics tell us that you know you are divided that most people are not in fact not only are most people not on the same page but most people do not like you and don't want you to exist it's because all of our information all of our perceptions are painted by the media they're shaped by and filtered through what i call the polarization industrial complex the polarization industrial, industrial complex undermines our ability to listen and hear each other to see each other across difference and of course, there's real value differences. I have no intention of papering over the real differences in our politics, but the role of leadership is to deliver a vision that speaks to our general aspirations, and most people have those aspirations. Just take a step back. There's widespread agreement on five or six of the top policy issues that Americans want progress and change on. And importantly, this is why I say that the hopeful majority is not only an essential antidote, but a necessary component to the solution of helping us see past those differences to understand that most of us want a vision. It's because the hopeful majority is ready to listen. We are people that are interested in hearing each other, in caring about each other, in empathizing across difference, in giving each other a chance to be better. We're willing to put down our phones and our social media feeds and actually go out there in the community and hear and see and talk to people that might be different than us. Not for some kumbaya feel-good reason, but for the hope and aspiration that e pluribus umnum, out of many, one.
out of many one. That's why the hopeful majority is a prerequisite for progress and policy issues on material issues in terms of advancing U.S. leadership. We need to first be able to listen and acknowledge each other. And that is why it is so difficult these days for people, especially somebody my age, to feel hopeful and feel that temperament. We are driven to urgent action or complete apathy and disengagement because of our life experiences, because of the leaders that are currently visible in our politics, because we are led to believe that most people in the society are out to get each other. And that's not true. That's not true. And I'm willing to bet on that truth. And with that, and as always, if you ever have any comments and thoughts and responses and reactions, drop them in the comment section, respond to this specific podcast or this specific video episode, wherever you get this. And importantly, I want to move us along to our next section with an amazing, amazing guest, a dear friend, a mentor, a thought leader, Monica Guzman, again, an author, an avid, uh, passionate individual who cares about curiosity in our society. And importantly, as Monica says, hope is a roadmap. And I'm excited for you to join me in my conversation with Monica where we challenge and hear and think about how we advance what we all believe is the hopeful majority. Monica Guzman, welcome to The Hopeful Majority. Hey, hey, Manu. It's so good to be here with you. So you know you know how I roll. And importantly, I have to say that it is the oddest thing to officially welcome you to something because I feel like you and I have conversations about what we're going to talk about all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know. Um, I've, lost, I've lost count. So, so, so you've lost count, but importantly, everybody listening to this is, is going to either be hearing your sort of amazing story, your concepts, your ideas, either for the first time or many times, neither of which I would be surprised at. But importantly, uh, I want you to know that the first sort of 10, 15 minutes of the monologue of today's show is about how do we build hope? And you and I, when we were just talking, um, what came up is that part of the reason why the show is called The Hopeful Majority is because you and I get asked almost at the end of everything that we talk about, how do you find hope? Um, is that the case with you? Like, is that, is that what happens? Oh yeah. Uh, I've been doing a lot of traveling over the last year and events all over the country. And it's one of the top three last questions that folks ask. So I know that you're a, a, an author, uh, of an amazing book that came out last year. You used to be an official journalist, uh, mm-hmm. and I say official, uh, <laughs> purposefully, you are a senior leader for one of the fastest and largest growing grassroots organizations in the country, depolarizing uh, uh, Braver Angels. Um, I actually had your compatriot on last week, John Wood Jr., to talk about that. And importantly, um, and most importantly, you are a thought leader in this work of how we bring folks together. Is there anything else that I missed in that illustrious introduction that you want (laughs) folks to know about? Because the rest of it and the entire sort of formality of it will be in the description. No, I think, I think that'll do for now. I am definitely one of those people who have worn many hats and, um, I guess I, I'm not all that comfortable doing just one thing. So I end up doing like 10. So the ones I mention are maybe the top four (laughs) that are top of mind. And then there are like the six others, the trail. So it's good. The, 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 given given sort of the 10 different hats uh, you've got, the first question I got to ask you, and it's specific to somebody like you, because I consider you a thought partner in this work deeply, is like, what, what got you started on specifically the work that you're doing now? Like, what is your journey? Tell us about Monica. Tell us about what makes you, you. Yeah. Oof. Well, here's what's coming to mind when you ask that. You know, one is... My own personal story, I was born in Mexico and came to the States when I was about six, became a citizen in the year 2000, but have always felt that sort of divided sense of home. I'm Mexican, I'm American, I'm Mexican and American. I'm literally a dual citizen. And there's something about identities that don't reconcile into one side of something, I think, that are a little more drawn to the the bridges that people need to build in their own lives. So John Wood Jr., you talked to him last week, he's half black, half white. He had one parent who was a Democrat, one parent who was a Republican. And as I've noticed that in other bridge builders, I've seen it and reflected on its role in my own story that I'm from Mexico, but I'm so from here too. 
And what does it mean to be an immigrant? What does it mean to have a country that you've adopted in a sense? What does it mean to have an attachment to another country where things are so different? What does that do to the perspective you have about this society you're in today? So that's definitely come up. I talk a lot about my family because that's honestly, if it weren't for this, I I would not be here. I would not be at Braver Angels. I would not be talking about a book I wrote a year ago. The fact that I come from a politically divided family of immigrants who became citizens and take very seriously our right to vote in this country, you know, think about the contrast with Mexico all the time, but vote for two different parties. Me and my brother both vote Democrat pretty reliably. And my parents not only vote Republican, but voted twice for Trump with enthusiasm. Um, So given the political landscape, we know that that is (laughs) it's not what it used to be where, oh, you vote Republican, you vote Democrat. Now there's so many divisions within the parties and and we know that. So, so that part of my journey, I think is, is really important. And frankly, even though I did a lot of reflecting on my family for the book itself and ended up getting a lot more personal than I initially thought I would, especially given that I'm a journalist and, and I take seriously the journalistic mandate to, to, to try to stay, you know, no, no perfect word for it, neutral, objective. Um, and so even just revealing my own politics in the book as a way of telling that story about my family was, was a challenge. But even though I did all that reflecting, I'm still reflecting on it now. I'm, I'm still thinking about it now, but the, the conversations my parents and I have had, but to, but to finish the journey question, that personal story with my parents is all the arguments, all the fights that we've had about politics over all these years, how much more heated it got around the 2016 presidential election, how that really tested us, and yet how we were able to have a lot of conversations that left me, because I was the most angsty one, let's be honest. My parents were not all that freaked out by my support for Biden the way that I was freaked out about their support for Trump. Um, but it left me in a place of, of understanding and illumination where I could say that if I were them, I would have voted for Trump too, where things added up to that degree, even though it was not agreement. Um, so I want to, for now, I want to ask you something that you just said there, which is, I want to, I want to hold on your family piece because I know that that's something that a lot of us can relate on those Thanksgiving dinners. Oh, Mm-hmm. That you must be you must be no stranger to those. Yep. But here's what I gotta ask you. You said I wanted to see myself in the American experiment. I wanted to see myself in America. I just have to ask you, what does it mean for you to be American? Mm. What what is that? Ooh. What what does that mean? What a great question, Manu. What an it's a question. question. It, it, it's a question that I would say folks in the hopeful majority, folks that I talk to yeah. all the time, people in this country, I think people are craving purpose. Pur- yeah. that, that's sort of my feeling. But I want to ask you, like, what does it mean to be an American to you? Yeah. And, and importantly, if that's still an ongoing journey. Always. I don't see how it couldn't be. And that's part of what being American means to me is that we are all on an ongoing journey. There are no final answers in America. And I think that's part of what's so what's so wonderful about it. I have a lot of admiration for the principles that the founding fathers brought to the founding of this country. I have a lot of respect and there's things in my life that echo a love of experimentation. And I think that America has been a leader in that. It is an unfinished project founded on these extraordinarily timeless principles. I mean, it's nuts that we're still looking at some of the language in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution as being so true to something deeply human, let alone a country or a nation. But the, the pursuit of happiness, like the, you know, the, the right to pursue happiness, my goodness, what a cool thing. Can I, can I ask yeah. you something on this? So the right to pursue happiness, what's fascinating about this is I was talking to somebody, I was actually, so some of the most interesting conversations I've had, believe it or not, are in the Uber to the airport and from the airport. Yes. I know that that's, yes. that's anybody that, that travels can yes. relate to this. Um, and this person was saying, you know, he, he, he was from Afghanistan. He was one of the actual interpreters in Afghanistan that served the U S army and now is out here in the U S. And I asked him, 
I said, I said, Omar, you know, we were talking about America and he said, America is the only country I think I know where I can come here and say that I'm American. There's very few places, you mm-hmm. know, I can't go to Germany and say that I'm German, that identity is specific to an ethnicity, mm-hmm. to people. Um, but America seems to be this thing that we can all sort of te- keep a piece of, that take of, with that, that that flag that we see, it's, it's something that, it means something to each of us in a very unique and specific way that it's a part of our identity. Do you feel that mm-hmm. about America? Yes. Do you think that- I that's, definitely that's, do. Yeah. Do you think that's unique I to this place? Do. Yes, I think I think it is. Um, now, that's somewhat aspirational, not based on evidence. I have not been to all the countries in the world and, and check this out. But I think that's part of the point. I think America America's ideals resonate almost spiritually um, on, on a deeper level, on a philosophical level, on a very human level. And I, I do feel that. It's funny you mentioned the Uber conversation. I remember Gosh, I remember getting so animated in an Uber car in Florida and my driver was Haitian. And that week he was telling me there had just been some some high profile assassination in Haiti. And he and I were just ranting together about, you know, we were ranting as immigrants, observing many native born Americans and we were saying they don't appreciate what they have. <laughs> you know, there's so there's all this hair pulling and screaming in media about all the problems and everything that's corrupt and so horrible. And it's yes, there are problems, but my goodness, look around. <laughs> you know, it's it, and and we really connected on this idea that yes, there are problems, but we cannot lose sight of what we have, of what needs to be preserved. If all we're chasing. And all we're talking about is the things to change. And we don't hold some of that appreciation. Honestly, it's one of the things as a liberal that I've really learned from conservatives. You know, conservatives tend to put more of a focus on the value of patriotism, the value of loyalty, period, and the value of sort of loving something even if it is imperfect. And um, I, I take that to heart when I think about my immigrant identity. Yeah, you know, uh, I want to hold something that you just said there, and we're going to get back to it, which is that as a liberal, I think conservatives get X right. That is something that you don't hear a lot today, mm-hmm. and I want to dig into why you are willing to not only give somebody that you disagree with credit, but importantly acknowledge what they have to add. Taking a step to this conversation and extending this, you say you know, that there are, of course, challenges to America. There's, of course, issues that prevent us and everybody necessarily from seeing themselves as American. But one of the things that I often wrestle with, Monica, is this notion of like of, of love, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I love America. What that means is I see its problems, see its flaws. I'm ready to critique its um, its challenges because I think that's a key part of love. And also love involves admiration yeah. that we can admire and critique, that these aren't mutually exclusive. Why do you think, or maybe we're not, but it feels like we're at this point where you either got to really say that you're all for America and that there's only greatness in America or yeah. that there's, there's only challenges and critique because that's how we get better. Why does it feel um, that we can't necessarily hold this concept of critique and admiration in one coin. I think it's largely because the spaces where people try to stand out push us toward the poles always. That it, it feels like the only way you're going to mobilize and energize is to say one thing very starkly with a lot of confidence and nuance just muddies the waters. And that's unfortunate. And I think we all agree that that's unfortunate and it's not even true. I think a lot about, when I think about this kind of love and as I've reflected on patriotism, loyalty, love of a nation, I think about being a mom. So that's an identity that matters a lot to me that I don't talk about much in these contexts. But, you know, I love my kids unconditionally. And when, but but, but I'm open with them, obviously, critiquing how they're growing into humans. Um I have a, in, in parenting speak, people talk about the engineer uh, model of parenting. Be, be careful with this uh, parenting speak. My mom says that I, I'm nowhere close to being a parent currently. So, so but, but let, let's go where you're going. I want to hear yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the engineering model of parenting and the gardening, gardener or shepherd model of parenting. And in the engineer model, the idea is the parent gets to program the child. So if the child does something wrong, it's the parent's fault. It all reflects on the parent. You're doing so many things wrong. And the gardener model is more, look, the kid is who the kid is. And you just want to make sure that, you know, 
are they in the shade when they need to be in the shade? The sun when they need to be in the sun? You're you're helping give them resources. And I I'm more on that side of parenting. But I but I think that with with love of nation, I worry that liberals might believe that if you love the country, that means that you're accepting them unconditionally and you cannot critique them. That that you're saying that it's perfect as it is, that if you're talking about what we ought to preserve, that that's all you're really saying and that all that you'll leave room for. But but that's not the case at all. I, you know, parents love their kids absolutely unconditionally, but they're also helping to shepherd, garden, cultivate, you know, and if something's wrong, then, then okay, let's fix it. But you, as a parent, you don't, you don't fix anything by telling your children that they're horrible. That's actually the worst thing to do. So that's where I really connect with the sense of patriotism being really important. It's like when conservatives hear, when they think they hear liberals basically saying, everything about America sucks, they're not seeing any redemption. They're not seeing any of the kind of love and commitment that it takes to get America through its rough spots. Yeah, and and you know, one of the books you have behind you, The Soul of America by John Meacham, I, I think a lot about in, in that book specifically talks about this notion that loving, um, like the reason why uh, uh, we want our kids to do better is because we love them. Right. So we're going to we're going to we're going to talk about some of their flaws, but not to your point in a way where they only see the bad because that yeah. wrecks confidence. Now, here's here's what I want to ask you. And you mentioned nuance, right? Because it, it it's like conversations like this, they require nuance. It almost feels like and the reason why we're sitting down here for 50 minutes, people are going to listen to it is because people don't necessarily want to operate in those those sort of sound clips. Um why is it so difficult for nuance to prevail at a moment like this? I mean, you've toured the country, you've gone all over the place, you've spoken at schools, at universities, at church groups, in local mm-hmm. communities. Um, do you feel like there's an appetite for nuance, or or what's the deal? Mm-hmm. What's the what's the what's the word on the street in terms of nuance? Yeah, I, I think it has a lot to do with the contexts and spaces where we actually speak. So, in one to one conversations, I think nuance is always comes out on top because. Or, or small group conversations, wherever people, the most people feel heard and feel like they can participate um, and where the group really welcomes everybody's voice, that's when you get a great conversation. And nuance happens as a matter of course, if those other things are made important. But then if you go to more mediated spaces, more digital spaces, all that falls away and you can't stand out. You can't get the visibility with nuance that you can with, you know, what we know, attention grabbing outrage, declarative statements, a lot of confidence that we conflate with strength. I believe nuance is a lot stronger. So I think it's that. I think it has so much more to do with how the ratio leans so much more heavily toward these mediated spaces in in the overall volume of our discourse. Um, And that if we made changes just in that, we would automatically be prioritizing nuance. But, um, but you know, we, we do. We crave these psychological things. We crave affirmation, especially when we're scared, when things are tense. We crave, you know, corroboration. We crave belonging. And it's much easier to belong to a group of people who think like us than it is to build belonging across lots of difference. But again, this is why I love being an American, because America has not given up on that. We put at the center of our DNA, oh yeah, we do have the hardest time building community out of the most diverse population you can imagine, but we're still in it. We're still pursuing it. I wanna hold on this point of, of diversity because you and I right now are sitting talking about our thoughts in America as two people that have had the privilege to meet so many Americans, to think about our democracy, to think about sort of the place of America in the world. And yet you're of Mexican heritage. I'm of Indian heritage. Um, Something like this isn't normal from a country I come from, like India. Um, It almost feels like diversity is both our strength, but also it's something that doesn't seem to be necessarily normal for us to capitalize the opportunity on. Um, It seems like we almost assume that, well, because we're diverse, it's all going to work out. But in fact, Mm -hmm. in the history of societies, it feels like diversity is actually a core challenge to societies being effective and efficient. And then last year, you wrote a book called I Never Thought of It That Way that talks about how we as people can relate to each other's diversity, how we as people can acknowledge each other. What do you think is the central element, quality, character, value, whatever it is that you want to call it, that helps us as people 
relate to each other more effectively, to capitalize on each other's diversity more effectively, to, to basically make this experiment work? Are there specific values or things you think mm -hmm. we as people should be prioritizing in our everyday lives? Yeah. I mean, the number one that I think about a lot is curiosity and not a, not a cold exploitative curiosity, one that is selfish and looking to use others as resources to some end, but rather the kind of curiosity that, that, that allow that, that like welcomes and invites people to share who they are so that we get a far broader view uh, than we could possibly have if all we lean on is our own experience. So I, I've, I've thought about that. There was someone I interviewed who, who called curiosity selfish, and I know what he meant. Um, and I instantly reacted to it and then later reflected, and I thought, but curiosity is caring. You know, when you get together in a group of friends and you want to know about each other's days, beyond just saying, oh, how's your day? Fine. No, no, no. No, I... You know, wow, you've got a smile on your face. What happened today, Manu? Well, actually something kind of cool, but you know, we've got work to do. No, 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 tell me about it. What happened? Well, there's this and this and this. Whoa, that must've felt amazing. What was that like? Tell me more. You know, that sort of curiosity. The, and, and curiosity leans on other values too. It leans on humility. It leans on empathy. It leans on openness. And it demands candor. It demands honesty. Uh, candor is really just openness plus honesty. Uh, if people aren't honest together, then what's the point of being curious? Um, you'll ask questions and people will stay guarded. So, but curiosity to me is, is the lead value to think about because it celebrates uncertainty as a strength. Well, of course we're unsure about all these things. We're all kinds of different people and it leans on diversity to your point. Um, because, you know, the world would be pretty boring if we were all the same. There wouldn't be that much to learn from each other if we were all the same. So curiosity makes the most of the fact that we are diverse and says, hey, this is going to be hard, y'all. <laughs> this is going to be hard and it's going to be ongoing. Let's keep asking questions of each other. Let's not assume that we have the answers without asking questions of each other. And let's not fall into the trap of becoming certain about things just so that we can feel better, just so we can soothe ourselves somewhat. We have to stay curious at a time like this or else we're gonna start closing doors that, that can't be closed and something about the American experiment will could wither. So curiosity is is everything. It's about keeping the doors open in your mind, uh, so, even at a time when you want to close them. I'm I'm curious about your curiosity. You mentioned at the in the opening that your parents uh, or a big reason for you actually caring about this and and getting involved in this work. I mean, you're somebody that's extraordinarily talented. You've done so much work. You know, there's so many different things you could go into, uh, and yet you find yourself today sitting and talking to me. Um, I want to ask you, like, what about that relationship? What about your background? What about your family? motivated you, inspired you, or at least found, helped you find your purpose in this sort of journey to help people be more curious, be more humble. Um, why yeah. this? Yeah. My mind's going back to the years when we first got to the States and watching my parents have to learn a lot, have to contend with a lot of things that they didn't know, have to make friendships all over again, have to learn a whole new culture, have to explain their accents to other people, have to pick up a language with more fluency than they had needed to before. There's something about being different uh, in whatever culture space you're in where you have to stay open. It becomes about survival in order to belong, in order to be understood and understand you have to stay open and you're going to get questions from people. So you end up maybe, and I guess I'm speaking for myself, but when I was in school, I went to a Catholic school in a small town in New Hampshire for my elementary school. And I remember there was one day when I was sitting in class and the a teacher from another class pulled me into her class just to tell everyone how to pronounce Moctezuma. Um, the name, the name of an Aztec leader. And I remember feeling this sort of pride. Um, 
there were not a lot of other Hispanic Latino kids in my school. So the fact that I was so different meant people could learn from me. Uh, and I thought that was a real, a real privilege. Um, I also remember, and I talk about this in the book, there was a moment in second or third grade where a classmate of mine, I was at her house, we were drawing on a blackboard and talking about the mountains in my hometown, Monterrey, Mexico. And I was talking about driving through the city and she goes, wait a minute, they have paved roads in Mexico? And I said, yeah, yes, yes, they do. What do you, what? <laughs> and I realized all she knew about Mexico was Speedy Gonzalez cartoons. That was it. And again, I wasn't, I was a kid. I wasn't offended. I was like, oh, because she knows me, she got to correct a misperception. And she wasn't already exposed to that, right? And so I felt a sort of, there was a way in which I was carrying something um, that could teach something to others. So that's that's one thing. So yeah, the, yeah. The, the offense piece is, is fascinating because there's one way to take the comment where somebody says, well, your friend must be somebody that's totally ignorant and does not care about Mexican culture and right. does not understand anything about Mexico. And alternatively, I mean, I, the first time I heard about Monterey, I said, Monterey, Mexico. And somebody immediately said, that's not how you say mm -hmm. it. And they, they could have taken offense to that, but they didn't. We have this knee-jerk reaction almost feels like in our society where, you know, if I get something wrong about you mm -hmm. or if I get something wrong about your culture or your background, that that curiosity almost is disincentivized because me being curious might make me vulnerable exactly. to getting something wrong. Exactly. Like, how do you deal with that? Exactly. How do you help people feel what you felt, which is not offense, but let me create a space for understanding. Yeah. I mean, it helped that we were kids. We weren't, uh, and that there wasn't social media. Were you not thinking about the perils of democracy <laughs> I was in your not fifth grade classroom? Time. No, I was not. I was certainly surprised. I was certainly shocked. And, and I will say that in moments like that, it's very natural to have a feeling of, it, you're reminded of your difference. You're reminded that what you know uh, is not the general knowledge. And why is that? You know, And so you're tempted to feel like you don't belong. And um, I think lately there's been a lot of thought about that, right? What can we do to make sure that people feel they belong? And frankly, this is another place where I learn a lot from conservatives. Um, you know, the, the, liberal, the liberal mind tends to think about things systemically, which, hey, <laughs> there's a lot of systemic stuff going on. So it's externalizing the burden of make me feel like I belong, make sure the spaces I'm in make me feel like I belong. My favorite essay of all time is Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson back from the 1800s. And you must have read this essay in your fifth grade classroom as well. Oh my God. This was, this was actually <laughs> high school and I burned it onto a CD and I had it in my car. And whenever I felt down, I would start listening to the audio of it. And it's, it, it's basically saying that this question of belonging, I don't think we, I don't think we should externalize it. I think it's silly. Now, yes, it, we need to build the spaces where we belong, where it's not a constant, you know, do you belong? Do you belong? Well, that's no good. Of course, it's a systemic issue, but it also has to come from within. So, so I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a, a Latina woman who saw me in an event in Oregon and talked to me afterward because she was really inspired by my story and said, I'm about to start my very first job and it's in a big marketing firm and it's going to be all white men. And I'm terrified. I don't think they're going to listen to me. You know, I, I, how, like, give me some advice. And we ended up chatting and I asked her questions about it. And and I just kind of invited her to, in those moments where she feels like she can't, um, you know, where she feels excluded, to just think to herself that, okay, I'm in a room of older white men or what have you. How lucky are they to get to learn from me? To walk into that room with a sense of internal security, with, with the question of belonging being already answered, being taken for granted. And then see what that does to the way that you bring yourself into that space. Because to me, that's America. So, so that's a philosophical uh, way. Well, well way when you when question. you think about sort of the the philosophy of it, you you mentioned this need to belong, and yet it seems like when we talked about the concept of America, America is one of those few places where almost each of us can feel like we've got a piece of this experiment that 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 a piece of this I can hold on to, I can belong into. Um, 
What's odd to me often about the conversation around belonging or diversity or inclusion, um, different ways to think about this notion that people need to feel like they, they're they here, is that almost oftentimes the conversation can feel oddly exclusionary as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, a lot of times when we have conversations about belonging, um, we only involve people that uh, we want to belong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's it's funny how the human mind works. How how do you combat that? How do you how do you help people actually include people uh, for the sake of not necessarily agreement, but for the actual endpoint of inclusion and belonging, the way it was mm-hmm. built and meant to be? I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that 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 is exactly a deeper definition of inclusion than what is often talked about. Um, you know what I what I see in society is. inclusion, but with a real focus on a couple of demographic qualities, right? Like race, gender, these sorts of things. But, but the most radical kind of inclusion, I think is just people who don't think like you, no matter what they look like, people who do not think like you, who, who do not share your general lens on the world. And there could be a million reasons for that. But, um, but I think that the critical step is to constantly be on the lookout for your own assumptions and when they, when they rear their heads, um, it's, it's so frequent when you start to pay attention, um, you know, how often you will just, you will just look at a person and assume something based on what they look like, uh, based on what religion they follow, based on the fact that, oh, you've just learned that they went to college or that they didn't go to college. You know, what, what sorts of assumptions and things get downloaded into your head, but, but I think that keeping all of that in a kind of state of suspension and, and actually saying, I don't know you until I talk to you. I don't know you unless I talk to you. And this, again, goes from the group and the systemic down to the individual. There's something called the ecological fallacy, which is this thing that we do where, you know, because something is true for a group of people, it will be true for every individual out of that group. I'm telling you, that is one of the that is one of the biggest tragedies that we're, we're applying that so often to people. We do not know each other unless we know each other. So, it almost seems like there's a deeper meaning to knowing. Now, it would be uh, 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 odd for me as somebody that wants to build bridges across difference to um, not at least feel the critiques of what you're saying. And so, let me be devil's advocate for a second, right? Um. Monica, I'm listening to this conversation. You know, we need to be curious. We need to know each other. Um, but you must be speaking from a point of privilege. You know, th- it, there's there's a certain degree of privilege required for me to sit back and say, okay, you know what? You're you're wrong about this, but that's all right. Let me be curious with you. Let me entertain you um, with, with sort of thinking, with questions, with intrigue, with deep sense of knowing, as you're saying. Um, how do you respond to this notion? How do you sort of... Um, uh, respond to this idea that actually, you know, critiquing and curiosity don't necessarily require privilege, that there are acts that can be done. What, what's your response to that? I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to say about it. I always try to be clear that there is no universal prescription. That would be silly. Uh, there's no one script for any of these types of conversations and there's no kind of kumbaya promised land at the end of every single engagement. So every person has to decide based on the relationship they have with the person that they're considering talking to their own attachment to the topic at hand. Um, I've got friends whose children transition genders. They are not about to leap into a conversation about trans issues that feel like they invalidate their child, you know, and another is about just the common sense situation here. Coming back to curiosity, it makes mathematical sense that a minority will always know more about a dominant, whatever culture you're in, whatever space. And there are multitude of spaces, right? In this country where maybe some spaces are more red dominant, more blue dominant, dominated by this race, dominated by this gender. But it's always way more nuanced than that. The the minority always knows more about the dominant because for whatever reason, the spaces in which they travel have tended to reflect the dominance experience, whoever that might be. 
So there is this natural skew. It's not like we all begin in the same place. That's true. But the 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 tension, I think, comes from, you know, the, the minority, whoever that is, is going to feel a lot more exposed and a lot more vulnerable um, in getting into conversations with the dominant about things that feel, you know, oppressive or wrong that the dominant just doesn't intimately understand because they're not intimately familiar. Um, the tension comes from wanting to stay safe by not participating in those engagements versus making sure that your space and your culture does reflect who you are or can grow to reflect who you are by making sure that you are seen, that you are participating, that you are engaging. Because I nobody knows the way cultures are built. It's one of the coolest, most interesting kind of facets of humanity. But you, it, they won't be built if, we, if, if those who occupy a minority stay out of sight. It, the culture cannot cannot reflect you if you are out of sight. So it's a tension between being safe and being seen. And being seen. That's fascinating. That curiosity actually is a mechanism to belong. You know, what's, fa what's, what's interesting about this is I was, I was born in New Jersey. I then uh, uh, flew and lived with my grandparents in India, then came back, moved around here every two years. Um, one of the things that I often talk about is that empathy for me was a survival strategy. Mm -hmm. Curiosity was actually a way to create space for the other to accept mm -hmm. me. Um, exactly. But the other piece of this, and you mentioned this, is that there's this levels of, of you know, systemic. There's the group. There's the individual. Um, we've primarily stayed at the individual level. And so naturally, one of the things that I'm going to be thinking about is, well, I want to achieve policy change on X issue, or I care about Y issue. Or in fact, that thing is so existentially pressing that I don't need to be curious because what I need to do is fix that issue. How do you balance and respond to the urgency to act mm -hmm with sort of the desire and necessity to be curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one thing to, to recognize is action and conversation are not disconnected. I, I hear that a lot, that they're kind of mutually exclusive, that if you're spending energy just talking, you're not, you're not also mobilizing action. But thought, how people think, determines how they act. So the act of persuasion happens in the context of, of conversation in a really very real, real way. Another thing is that that doesn't have to be exclusive, um, mutually exclusive, is this idea that either I fight or I get curious. But to me, the best fighter is the curious fighter. It's the one who's always checking his assumptions with what's actually in the hearts and minds of people today. With any topic that matters right now, it's constantly evolving. Because again, we are a free and open American democratic society and we're okay with the mess. That's what makes us beautiful. But it also means that you can't just write it all in a textbook, study the textbook, close the textbook, and then do your thing. You have to stay plugged in. This is one of the things I learned in my career as uh, a journalist who got became kind of known for a sort of engagement style of journalism where, look, all the people in the editorial meeting cannot possibly know what the community needs. Not by just sitting there and talking to each other. You, you have to have channels and habits and routines that are constantly being plugged back into the community that you serve. And so that's the same for any advocate. Any advocate needs to stay open. So don't use all your energy on that. Now, the mobilizing, the fighting, the advocacy, the, the protest, that is part of American democracy, too. That's important. That's really important. But save some of your energy for some kind of routine check, some openness, because otherwise your world will become more narrow and you may start to believe that the reality of the debate you're having is something that isn't even real at all. You have to make sure you're questioning and challenging yourself. So you have to make sure you're questioning, you have to make sure you're challenging um, that in fact, curiosity is a mechanism for change. Now, what's interesting about this is that, and, and I've talked to you about this is like, Part of the reason why we call the podcast The Hopeful Majority is because I think that there's a vast group of people out there that are, are curious, that want a world in which we can listen to each other, that want a world in which it's okay to be wrong so that I can grow, that you don't have yeah. to necessarily punish me. But the reason why I got into this entire podcasting that I had to buy this microphone is because all of us are just quiet. Like the hopeful majority is quiet, you know, where there's this, there's this, there's a vocal minority of people out there on all sides of the political spectrum that are sort of dominating the conversation. And 
I decided like, you know, all right, I'm going to do my small piece and, and get out there and get involved. And somebody that's listening to this is doing their piece by, by listening and tuning in and getting active to that person that's listening. They're thinking, well, Monica seems very eloquent, very engaged. Monica's got a specific story that mm-hmm. positions her to be a leader on this issue. Um, what is your message to somebody that's just listening to this and is like, well, what can I do? Hmm. How, how do how do I take this in my personal agency and do something in my personal life? How do I affect the individuals around me? Hmm. I mean, one thing is to ask yourself a question. Uh, who are the people that you tend to talk about, but never with? Where do your judgments of your fellow Americans seem strongest without some kind of requisite amount of engagement to check the projections and misperceptions and assumptions that are bound to arise. So that's a challenging question, but it's a question that can inspire action. If you answer that question with a certain type of person, a certain group of people, then you have a kind of, you have a kind of target. Just is there a way that I could engage a little more with that kind of person? Can I put myself in a place where I hear more generously uh, what this group is saying to to themselves. But I don't want it to sound like such hard work because really, as I've looked at curiosity, it, it is a muscle. It gets stronger as we practice it. And the the thing that will already make so much difference is for you to take any action that makes you one little step more curious than you were. So that can mean you're in a conversation of disagreement and you want to jump in with your opinion, ask one more question. Ask one more curious question that's actually driven at learning about the other person. Because you'll have more material upon which to get curious and you'll be more likely to have the other person feel heard, which makes them more likely to hear you, which makes all of persuasion more effective. So even those tiny steps, you can even take a step that doesn't require any other person really there at all. The next time that you find a headline that represents some view that is popularly held, but that you disagree with, read that article, not to doom scroll, not for ammo, but with the questions in your mind, what is the strongest argument on the other side? Said generously. And then what are the deep down honest concerns that are animating this person's perspective, anger? You can even look behind the anger. Don't let anger get in your way. Let anger be data that somebody really cares about this if they're angry. Okay, what is it that they really care about? What do they want to preserve? Not just what do they hate? What do they love? Yeah. Is there ever a time to not be curious? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when it's an individual thing. So you cannot be curious. You cannot be open in a conversation if you don't feel secure in that conversation. If for whatever reason, the risk is too high, the the, the temperature is too high and something's burning, You want the temperature to be high and for something to be cooking, right? But if something's burning, like my Instant Pot going burn, 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 like you stop the Instant Pot, you open the lid, you add some liquid, you know, you get out of the conversation. I can't believe I just use a cooking analogy for the Instant Pot. That's the way that this stuff is... is Instapots yeah. and curiosity. Exactly. That's the, title. that's the thing. This is this is the analogy we yeah. all need. Yeah. But that, but that's that, it. That and motherhood. I, I have to I have to ask you, being a being a mother, um, when you're sort of raising your children, um ha- have you thought about curiosity with respect to them? And how how have you sort of thought about inculcating this as a value? Because many of the people that are going to be listening to this conversation are going to be thinking, well, you know, curiosity, it's one for me to be curious and I can help myself be curious. How do I help others be curious? How do you approach mm-hmm. that as a mother? Yeah, modeling. You model curiosity as much as possible. I'm not perfect at this, but I try to do it as much as possible. When my kids have a situation, you know, they've got something going on. The best thing I can do is try to ask them questions. You know, ask them questions to help them work through it. There are more answers and there is more wisdom inside their little hearts (laughs) than I often think, especially when I'm upset with them. But it's so much stronger, right? When people find their own responses and 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 are encouraged to ask questions. So that's important. And then when I hear them make judgments about their classmates or whatever it is that sound quite harsh, you know, I'll just ask questions. What, how did you, how did you come to believe that? Have you considered alternatives, alternative explanations for this thing or that thing? And I'll watch them sort of calm down, you know, and then their creativity come back up. 
So I've got one last question for you. And then I want to end with the question that we ask every single hopeful majority guest. To your surprise, there's only been one of the guests, but there'll be many more after. Mm -hmm. And you're the second inaugural guest. But before that question, I got to ask you the last piece, which is a lot of this stuff to me sometimes feels like we're selling broccoli. You know, Mm. we're we're, we're selling stuff that, you know, it's good. It's great to be curious. It's good to be curious. It's good for you. It's like, it's like the gym, you know, like if I worked out as much as I should be working out, I'd look much better, but I don't, you know, it's hard. Um, how do you make this stuff sound interesting, exciting? There's oftentimes this feeling that we're just building this bubble of, you know, you and I, and all the other people doing this work. Um, how do you make this interesting? Mm-hmm. I think that conversations are a good conversation is one of the most delightful and engaging and fun things that we can do. And it's, it's wacky when you think about it, you're just sitting there talking to each other. Um, I, I'll never forget a conversation I had when I was studying abroad in England and I had met these, these amazing other students and we talked through the night about religion, about George W. Bush, about the war, about all these things. It was 2004. And I saw the sun come up. And I've never forgotten that feeling of like, we talked talked. all night. I know them so much better now. They know me. We've been to all of each other's weddings since. Like we're tight. I mean, a, a conversation where you feel open and where you calibrate with each other to the point that suddenly you feel safe sharing way more than you thought you would. And so do they with you. It's like a mind meld. It's fun, y'all. And you don't want to do this with people who are just like you. That's beyond boring. That's so silly. <laughs> you know? and, so uh, and I mean, I mean, the awesome. fact that the fact that you had a conversation with your friend, uh, a British person talking about George Bush in 2004. If you could, <laughs> if you could have that dialogue and you waited for the sun to come around, man, we could oh, have a lot of other conversations. It was so great, Manu. It yeah. really was one of the best days of my life. You know, I, I could, I could ask you so many more questions because I think importantly, um, the story of the show and the arc of the show is I think something that I want the hopeful majority to be reflected in, which is that, um, I'm just, one person, you're one person, we're out here, we're grinding, we're working hard, we're growing our profiles, we're trying to help people understand that there's this concept. And the reason why we call it the hopeful majority is because we want people to feel like there's more of us out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the difficulties I found in being hopeful is that oftentimes we're not hopeful when we don't know our why, when we don't know our purpose, mm-hmm. when we're out of touch with our purpose. And so the question that I always end every uh, show with and want to end every show with is this. What is your why? Mm. My why is that I want a world that sees itself. I think a stronger world is a world that sees itself, that isn't afraid to open its eyes wider, where we're able to be honest and we're able to accept each other for who we are, not agree, but at least begin at a point of mutual acceptance when we can then argue and we can argue well. So a world that sees itself where understanding is not only possible, but but probable and common and fun and interesting and enriching and illuminating, right? I think that that's more than probable in America. And uh, yeah, and I think there's easier ways to do it than we think. A world that sees itself. I hope that many of the folks listening to this, I know they see and we see ourselves in the questions and curiosities that you're asking. I think importantly, what's fascinating, the story I always remember about our exchange was when I was very, I still am young, but when we first started Bridge USA, which was our freshman year, I remember hearing about this organization called Braver Angels. And then I remember a couple of years after hearing about this person named Monica Guzman. And I thought, man, Monica not only tells stories really well, but I want to know what inspired and motivated her to get involved. And I think the more and more we can ask these questions, the better it is. Any last departing messages that you would like to provide those that are listening to the hopeful majority? I mean, I think hope is not naive. Hope is necessary. A lot of people think hope is just the belief that everything's fine and everything's going to be fine. No, like hope, hope is a roadmap. Um, Amanda Ripley wrote a great column in the Washington post about this just recently. Um, there's been research into hope and, and how required it is. We have to see the future that we know is there. And then we have to participate in it. 
We can't wait for institutions to figure it out as if we're not part of those institutions. We have to do it ourselves. Like start, start within you and then go into your circles and do not believe for a second that it's too small. Hope is a roadmap. Thank you, Monica Guzman, so much for your time uh, as a friend, as somebody that I see as a mentor, as somebody that I see as a leader in this work, and importantly, somebody that I've learned a lot from. And more than that, if you've got any questions, any critiques from Monica, if you feel like there's something that you wanted me to ask, you let me know because this conversation, most importantly, is about you. It's how do we get people like us to be more curious. Thank you, Monica, for your time, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Well, that's a wrap on Hopeful Majority number two. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you to Monica Guzman. And most importantly, remember that we're building nuanced conversations and we're fighting outrage. So if you can like and subscribe on YouTube or leave a review on Apple and Spotify, it helps move our Hopeful Majority forward. And stay tuned because next week we're coming at you again with another question. And that question is, how do we critique America and believe in America at the same time so that we can actually move our experiment forward? Jeremy Suri is going to be the guest. See you then.